Well, this is a great way to begin the semester. Uh, and this is a rather special week uh, because there were two major articles in the TLS this week about Woodhouse. So this is uh, really unusual. Uh, and it's, what should I say, other than Sam Baker is going to introduce our speaker. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted, honored to introduce David Leal. I'm going to, you know, expressively read uh, his short bio and then not expressively read his 23-page his CV, but instead uh, just say a few uh, warm words about uh, his um, you know, presence in, in the British Studies community. David's a professor of government uh, here at UT and an associate member of Nuffield College at Oxford and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. His primary academic interest is Latino politics and his work explores the political implications of demographic change in the United States. He teaches classes in Latino politics, immigration politics, politics and religion, the US Congress, and most recently, as we've been hearing about, British politics has become a, uh, an area uh, for his teaching, which we've been really excited about. He's been a Fulbright Distinguished Lecturer in Japan, was named a Distinguished Alumni Scholar by Stanford, and was recently elected to a three-year term on the Council of the American Political Science Association. He was an undergraduate at Stanford and an MA and PhD at Harvard. In addition to his uh, book, the nine volumes he's edited, and the dozens of articles in political science, other social science journals that he's published, and his work, uh, uh, grant-funded um, uh, collaborative research with the Carnegie Corporation, the National Academy of Education. He is also the proud author of three articles in the Baker Street Journal, published by the Baker Street Irregulars, the American Sherlock Holmes Society, that has included members such as Franklin Roosevelt and Isaac Asimov. Uh, I think of him as you know, a member of the English Department Irregulars across campus, <laughs> you know, the people who uh, you know, we actually uh, count on to keep it real for us about, you know, the, the pleasures and as I think we'll hear about today also, the perils of uh, uh, literature in the round. Um, and, you know, who remind us of like the tremendous, uh, you know, resource uh, for scholarship that the ongoing curation of knowledge about um, beloved figures like Arthur Conan Doyle or P.G. Wardhouse uh, uh, provides for us. Uh, then, you know, more broadly, um, as really, you know, one of our key in-house political scientists here at British Studies, uh, David's been a, a, a rock of sanity for us in these <laughs> uh, troubled uh, political times. Uh, you know, he has, you know, you all will know him for that matter-of-fact, calmly intellectual man that he brings that is really the furthest thing imaginable from the character of any Wardhouse, you know, <laughs> any of Wardhouse's, uh, you know, uh, familiar cast. So it's this sort of, a, it's a funny, when you, when you talk about Sherlock Holmes, you know, I, I see you as like a, you know, a forensic, you know, thinker and investigator after your own fashion. But, you know, here it's, it's you know, it's a bit of an opposites attract kind of thing, I, I feel like. Uh, but we're just uh, always so delighted to, um, to hear from you on you know, politics or on literature, and especially on <coughs> politics and literature. So, David Leal. Right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, just to be a Woodhouseian character, maybe I'll try to sing later today. I've actually got a place here where I may try to put some lyrics uh, into this. Uh, so we all know that P.G. Woodhouse was apolitical. Uh, he knew nothing about politics. He had no partisan allegiances. He held no opinions on the issues of the day. We search his books in vain for political lessons. He escaped from such unpleasantness into his literary worlds where the shenanigans of politicians and parties rarely intrude. This is the conventional wisdom, and most readers would not have it any other way. Politics means the real world, which Woodhouse readers are glad to avoid. In this talk, I'll reconsider this perspective in light of Woodhouse's fictional references to the politics and political parties of his day. 
the meaning of these mentions is not always clear as the political context of Victorian and Edwardian Britain have receded into the midst of time. And my sense is that Woodhouse readers glide right over these political references as our focus is on the clever language, historic settings, and unique characters. But as a political scientist reading his work, I could not help but notice political knowledge casually but regularly interspersed. It's easy to miss because we are charmed by the deceptive ease of his writing and the seemingly effortless humor on every page. He's now recognized as England's greatest comic writer and his new memorial at Westminster Abbey reads humorist, novelist, playwright, lyricist, not pundit. But this does not mean that Woodhouse was unaware of politics or that it played no role in his stories. Here are a couple quotes that I think represent the conventional wisdom about Woodhouse. The first is uh, with Jeeves and Worcester. What do ties matter, Jeeves, at a time like this? There is no time, sir, at which ties do not matter. <laughs> Jeeves in the impending doom. And while this is undoubtedly true, it does suggest an avoidance of the weighty issues of the day. Woodhouse was also a famous lyricist, and here are some lyrics. I don't know how to put this to song, so I won't, but it was put all your troubles in a great big box and lock it up with a great big key. And I think this suggests that Woodhouse sought to flee from reality and not try to address it head on. But even if politics is present in his writing, did Woodhouse express any opinions? While we read his work in vain for any overt endorsement of parties, politicians, or ideologies, a curious pattern does emerge. As I will discuss, Woodhouse gratuitously criticizes one side of the political spectrum in several books and short stories across multiple decades. This may not quite constitute a sustained political attack, but for a writer with no reputation for an interest in politics, uh, it is remarkable. More specifically, he appears to have something against the conservatives and unionists. While he rarely discusses them in any depth or at any length, one important fact is that these references are rarely essential to his plots. As uh, NTP Murphy suggested, any names, events, and places in Woodhouse stories that are superfluous, out of place, or just don't sound right are probably drawn from his real life. These partisan references may therefore represent Woodhouse's own views to the degree he had any. Why does any of this matter? Because Woodhouse made one major mistake in his life, a series of five radio broadcasts from Berlin in 1941. As I will discuss, it created a storm of controversy in Britain. He was denounced by some as a traitor, and his friends could only respond that he was stupid and naive. After the war, he moved to a more forgiving America and never returned to Britain. In order to defend Woodhouse, people like George Orwell claimed he was politically ignorant. The question of his political awareness and knowledge is therefore intertwined with the issue of his culpability for broadcasting on enemy radio. I do not believe this should be so. I think we can recover a Woodhouse who knew something about politics, while at the same time not leaving him open to charges of acting as a comedy version of Lord Haha. -Ha. We need not pretend that politics never appears in his work when it clearly does. My argument is that Woodhouse did know quite a bit about politics, but it was a knowledge unwillingly obtained. To explain how, I will adapt a term from media studies, the inadvertent audience. This was developed to describe Americans who watched TV news in the broadcast era, not because they wanted to, but because nothing else was on in the evening time slots. They learned about politics, although they did not want to. In a related way, Woodhouse learned about politics because his first newspaper job required it. He wrote a column in the early 1900s for The Globe, a paper that supported the conservatives and he was required to read the daily papers in order to find ammunition to humorously criticize the Liberal Party and its politicians. Here's the globe. My theory is that this job forced him to learn about late Victorian and Edwardian politics, and this knowledge eventually found its way into his stories, just as so many things did from his real life. However, he almost certainly disliked writing partisan drivel, and he got a lighthearted revenge by criticizing in his subsequent fiction the conservatives and unionists he had previously been forced to support. He also neglected to update his stock of political information after leaving the paper. His references are almost exclusively in the Edwardian late Victorian era, and this suggests a lack of interest combined with a newfound lack of necessity for learning anything about politics uh, after the 1910s. So this talk will therefore examine the political references in his fiction. One caveat is that Woodhouse wrote almost 100 books and short story collections, and I've maybe read a third of them, maybe? 
So these findings in my paper reflect my own quirky reading, as well as some searching online through his out-of-copyright texts. But it does cover much of what is generally considered to be his most popular works, uh, Blanding's Castle, Uncle Fred, Eucridge, Mike and Smith, The Drones Club Stories, and of course, Jeeves and Worcester. In addition, I'll only discuss his fiction. He wrote quite a bit for newspapers, some of it unsigned, and there is a Woodhouse reclamation project that is uncovering this unsigned work. But this is nonfiction and would have been written under the eye of an editor. So I'm not sure how much we can say it represents his own knowledge and interests. By contrast, his fiction is clearly his own, so any political characters and plot elements best represent the state of his knowledge and views. Who was Woodhouse? Pelham Grenville Woodhouse was a member of a prominent English family led by the Earls of Kimberley. His father Henry was a colonial magistrate in Hong Kong who received the CMG, and his mother Eleanor Dean was the daughter of a minister. Many of these highly respectable Woodhouses and Deans served Britain and its empire as members of parliament, generals and admirals, members of the clergy, and colonial officials. A Woodhouse ancestor fought at the Battle of Agincourt, and a more contemporary relative was assistant commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police Force, and a cousin, the second Earl of Kimberley, was the first Labour member of the House of Lords. Plum, as he was known to his family, was born in Hong Kong, but sent at a very young age to live with relatives in England, a common practice among colonial families because of health worries. He spent years living with aunts and uncles in what we might call a lower middle upper class life with social status, but maybe somewhat less ready cash than they might have wanted. With these older relatives, he called on prominent persons in their country houses as a boy, but he preferred to spend time visiting the servants below the stairs. He spent six idyllic years at the English mid-tier public school Dulwich College, whose tie I am wearing. Other famous Dulwich old boys include Raymond Chandler, who gave us the hard-boiled detective Philip Marlowe, and Nigel Farage, who gave us Brexit. <laughs> Plum was editor of a school paper. He was an excellent cricket bowler. He played rugby. And he began writing stories for magazines with a public school boy readership. Here is one of them, Chums Magazine. Here we can see public school students, sports equipment, some kind of British naval officers fighting, maybe some kind of a pirate, uh, the British and English flags waving. Uh, it's like the cover of Brexit Quarterly Magazine. <laughs> he was planning to join his older brother at Oxford when a family crisis struck. As a retired colonial official, his father's pension was paid in rupees. With Plum on the threshold of Oriel College, a currency devaluation left his family in temporarily straitened circumstances. His father could not afford to send two sons to Oxford, so he pulled strings and found him a position as a clerk in a bank, which is now called HSBC. For the young Woodhouse, the bottom had fallen out of his world. Rather than living an idyllic life playing cricket and writing at Oxford, he found himself a clerk in a dreary city bank with the dreaded prospect of being sent to a colonial branch in three years. If you want to understand his distress, you can read his thinly veiled autobiographical account in Smith in the City, and this is Smith and Mike, a continuation of characters from his schoolboy stories, and they're working at a bank in the city, just like Woodhouse had to do, and he characterizes them and all the other clerks. It's not a very happy sort of pro-banking story. In order, to, in order to leave the bank before the inevitable overseas posting, he began to write in maybe almost literally every spare minute available, his roommates and friends would later recall that after dinner, he would go straight to the bathroom, close the door, and write. His goal was to earn enough from writing so that he could quit the bank before being sent abroad. His big break came when a former Dulwich master offered him a temporary job on the By the Way column of the Globe, which after some mergers became today's evening standard. He took this risk, quit the bank, and never looked back. If you want to know what he thought during this period, you could read his thinly veiled autobiographical account of a young man who works for a newspaper and a column in Not George Washington. That's a cleric roller skating, by the way. A scene in his story. He would eventually work full time for the newspaper and become a prolific and increasingly successful fiction writer. It's highly likely that he learned about politics then, as Murphy noted that his column, quote, normally began with some satirical comment on speeches made by liberal politicians. Woodhouse began to visit America, lived there through World War I, began writing lyrics for musicals on both sides of the Atlantic, spent time as a Hollywood scriptwriter, 
and began living in France for tax reasons. He was there when the Germans invaded in 1940. He delayed returning to England, ostensibly because he did not want his dogs to go through quarantine, but more likely because he misunderstood and, mis and underestimated the danger. He was captured and interred as an enemy alien. After the war, he moved to America and never returned to England for reasons I will explain shortly. Woodhouse loved dogs. Dogs appear, along with cats, to a much lesser degree in many of his stories. This is a picture of him with some of his dogs. And this is another picture of him with his peak. He loved peaks. They appear in uh, many short stories and, and novels. And he actually founded an animal shelter on Long Island that still exists. As a result of these voluntary and involuntary travels, the Edwardian era was frozen in amber in his memory. He was too young to fully experience the Victorian era, and he was not present in England for much of any subsequent era. For him, the only England he personally knew and experienced was the country house set of the late 1800s as a boy and London of the early 1900s as a young man. Even when living in Long Island in the 1970s, his mind was in the Edwardian era. Much of this world was lost after the Great War, and any Oxford visitor will notice the many college memorials to students and old boys lost in the conflict. Here's one from Christchurch. This is just one small part of a very large set of monuments there to, uh, to the lost uh, students and, to some degree, the faculty of Christchurch. Uh, the names here include, in just this one picture here, we have one earl, one baronet, two honorables, and a grandson of William Gladstone. By the 1920s, however, Woodhouse was only intermittently in England, and he last set foot there in 1939, the same year he received an honorary degree from Oxford. Because of this absence, we have almost 100 novels and short story collections that capture this era as no boring history book ever could. <laughs> as subsequent research has shown, Woodhouse wrote about what he knew, and almost all of his locations and characters were taken from his real-life experiences. Names of people, places, and institutions appear like the ghosts of England past, the Gaiety Theater, Wonderland Boxing Hall, Romano's Restaurant, Socialist Agitators, Impatient Bookies, The Bachelor's Club, the Piccadilly Palace Hotel, and many others known only to social historians and Woodhouse fans. And he wrote Wood Jeeves and Worcester stories for decades. And he's also known for many other series, too, although I think they're less well-known than Jeeves and Worcester. So, for example, we have the, uh, the multiple volumes of Blanding's Castle. We have the golf stories of the oldest member. We have the tall tales of Moliner. We have Uncle Fred, uh, the happy troublemaker. And we have the stories that started it all, Mike and Smith, the school boys, the, the, the school tales of, uh, that are basically, again, autobiographical from Woodhouse's own time at Dulwich. By the time World War II began, Woodhouse was famous in the US and the UK for his humorous fiction and musical lyrics. At one point, five Broadway plays were running where he wrote all or some of the lyrics. We can see uh, some more of his stories. We can see some uh, of uh, his, uh, his, well, his fame through looking at some of this. So we see him with Cole Porter here in Anything Goes as the lyricist. We see him with George and Ira Gershwin in OK. And we see him with uh, his famous uh, partners Bolton and Kern in Oh Boy. He was so financially successful that he engaged in a series of federal court battles with the IRS on the taxing of his, the double taxing of his transatlantic income, going all the way to the Supreme Court, which helped to shape subsequent tax law and policy. And there is a whole book about this. You simply hit them with an ax, which is a quote from a Woodhouse letter about how he dealt with the IRS, sending his lawyers to the deal with them. The extraordinary true story of the tax turmoils of P.G. Woodhouse. One author argued that the shows written by Guy Bolton, uh, B.G. Woodhouse, and Jerome Kern were, quote, the first real steps toward a truly American theater, even if two of them were British. One writer pointed out that if Plum had died in 1920, he would have been known as a lyricist who was crucial to the development of the great American songbook, but not as an author. The success of Oh Lady Lady in 1918 at the Princess Theater in New York uh, inspired a critic from the New York Times to anonymously cite the following ditty adapted from a baseball song, which I will somewhat attempt to put to song here. So please forgive me for this, but I think you just can't read it. So it's short. So it goes. Uh-oh. 
the alien invasion has started. <laughs> well, I don't know what we can do about that, so. Well, I'll sing anyway. So in the meantime, we'll have a musical accompaniment to this uh, technology uh, fix. So this is the trio of musical fame, Bolton and Woodhouse and Kern. Better than anyone else you can name, Bolton and Woodhouse and Kern. Nobody knows what on earth they've been bitten by. All I can say is I mean to get litten by. Orchestra seats for the next one that's written by Bolton and Woodhouse and Kern. So not the sort of thing New York Times theater critics typically write as part of their... <laughs> ah, excellent. But I think this goes to show you his place in musical theater and how enthusiastic and popular his plays were were received, not just because he was a brilliant lyricist, but also just the way that they were changing all of musical theater from rather kind of boring and stereotyped kind of plots that didn't make any sense at all to all of a sudden things that you might actually go and want to listen to and experience and that actually made sense as stories. Today, the key fact about Woodhouse is that his writing has stood the test of time. A.N. Wilson, the critic and writer, provocatively contrasted Woodhouse to all other 20th century writers. It's worth quoting him in full, especially as we are at the HRC, which is very interested, after all, in 20th century English writers. So Wilson's quote is that, popular English fiction of the 20th century did not have much of a shelf life. Priestley, Thurkel, Deeping, Sayers, it's hard to think of anyone reading them now except for curiosity value. Bring the list up to date with John Fowles or Kingsley Amos, and you see the same thing happening. They are crumbling before your eyes, like exhumed bones exposed to ultraviolet. Not so P.G. Woodhouse, who is now bought and read more than ever. Something we might discuss later. And Woodhouse is indeed read across the globe by millions. His books are in print. New biographies are written about him. One just came out last year. Woodhouse societies exist in many nations, and his estate recently authorized new pastiche stories that were well-reviewed and probably found under many Christmas trees last month. Sounds like the HRC might want to expand its Woodhouse collection, which, from what I can tell online, currently consists of two boxes of material. Woodhouse's life almost came crashing down during World War II, not because of his internment by the Germans, of which a, uh, a TV series was made by the BBC, but by his talks on German radio. He made five broadcasts from June to August of 1941. He thought the audience would be America, which had not yet entered the war, but they would be heard in Britain and caused outrage. Woodhouse intended his broadcasts to be lighthearted descriptions of British internees keeping their chin up under difficult circumstances, with the subjects intended to be humorous, like, quote, how to be an internee without previous training. But it created a storm of controversy in Britain, with some accusing him of receiving early release uh, in a quid pro quo, or otherwise acting in an unpatriotic or even treasonous manner. Some would suspect him of Nazi sympathies or anti-Semitic feelings, charges heard even today. The public attacks on Woodhouse, which were a little over the top in retrospect, came from people ranging from Winnie the Pooh author A.A. A. Milne, who Woodhouse in a letter said that he thought was jealous of him, to the poet Sean O'Casey, who does come across as one of those literary types who dismiss Woodhouse as a middle-brow author. Casey wrote, the harm done to England's cause and England's dignity is not the poor man's dabble in Berlin, but acceptance of him by the childish part of the people and the academic government of Oxford, dead from the chin up as a person of any importance in English literature. So, editorials denounced him in newspapers as diverse as the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Worker. Some friends did come to his defense, such as George Orwell, who wrote, quote, it is important to realize that the events of 1941 do not convict Woodhouse of anything worse than stupidity. So with friends like that, but that was the, <laughs> but that was, but that was the best defense they could come up with, was that he was ignorant or stupid or naive or all of them together. Yeah. The most damaging attack was the remarkable broadcast uh, by the journalist William O'Connor, that Minister of Information, well, article that uh, William O'Connor, then Minister of Information, Duff Cooper forced the BBC to broadcast, despite the advice of BBC governors that its claims were slanderous. Here are some excerpts. I have come to tell you tonight of the story of a rich man trying to seek his last and greatest sale, that of his own country, of honor and decency being pawned to the Nazis for the price of a soft bed in a luxury hotel. 
Woodhouse was steadily being groomed for stardom, the most disreputable stardom in the world, the limelight of Quislings. On the last day of June this year, Dr. Goebbels was ready. So too was Pelham Woodhouse. He was eager and he was willing. When they offered him liberty in a country which has killed liberty, he leapt at it. And Dr. Goebbels, taking him high into the mountains, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said unto him, all this power will I give you if you worship the Fuhrer. Pelham Woodhouse fell to his knees. Philip Ziegler wrote that Duff Cooper was never mean or ignoble, but I guess you can judge for yourself. The best retort to this mean-spirited hysteria and personal score settling was written in the New York Times Book Review. In the course of reviewing in 1946 his first post-war publication, Joy in the Morning, it said, there is of course the question of Mr. Woodhouse's war guilt. Upon mature post-war reflection, it turned out to be about equal to the war guilt of the Dachshunds, which were stoned by superheated patriots during World War I. Woodhouse became an American citizen in 1955 and was belatedly knighted in 1975, a month and a half before his death. Some say it was thanks to Harold Wilson, although other stories credit the Queen Mother. It had been opposed previously by two British ambassadors to the US. This award, which is almost always described as long overdue, would be seen as an official end of this estrangement between Britain and one of its greatest writers and cultural ambassadors. Nevertheless, we can see, even today, varying perspectives on this episode. In The Guardian, the paper for what remains, so to speak, of the left in Britain, in the digested read section, or digested read section, you can find a review of Sophie Radcliffe's P.G. Woodhouse, A Life in Letters, that consists of this illustration and a mocking parody of Woodhouse's writing style. On the other hand, The Guardian also lists his 1938 book, The Code of the Worcesters, Add under books of defiance and called it a guide to fighting fascism and said, quote, forget about the author's wartime mistakes. The way Bertie tackles Mosley-esque thug Roderick Spode is a great lesson in sending up would-be dictators. Was Woodhouse aware of politics? George Orwell was fairly typical when he argued for, quote, Woodhouse's complete lack so far as one can judge from his printed works of political awareness. This was written to defend Woodhouse in the context of the radio broadcast criticism. I think fans of Woodhouse have adopted this view because it conveniently sidesteps any potential culpability for what the Times of London would ultimately call an indiscretion. And it is consistent with a key reason that people read Woodhouse to escape from the real world. Nevertheless, his formative work in journalism undoubtedly familiarized him with the political figures, parties, and controversies of the time. As Murphy noted, the By the Way column often included humorous political commentary, and The Globe was a paper with definite partisan views. If Woodhouse learned about politics and occasionally incorporated it into his subsequent stories, we should not be surprised. While these are all stories set in the UK, Woodhouse also showed an awareness of American politics, particularly the urban political machines of New York City in the early 1900s. He even wrote what might be called a crusading anti-corruption novel Smith journalist. And this is a picture of the audiobook by uh, Jonathan Cecil. And if you haven't listened to Jonathan Cecil's audiobooks, then you haven't lived. <laughs> so in the following paragraphs, I'll discuss some of the more prominent political content of his stories. Because this review is based on my own reading and some online searching, I've probably missed a few things. So in Leave it to Smith, 1923, the members of the Senior Conservative Club are described as looking like they had, quote, dropped in after conferring with the Prime Minister at Downing Street as to the prospects of the coming by-election in the Little Wobsley Division. So this could not have been written by someone who was completely clueless about politics. The short story, The Long Arm of Looney Coot, 1923, revolves around a parliamentary campaign, and it shows knowledge of canvassing, political meetings, and parliamentary voting. It even features a keen young journalist, clearly autobiographical, who is interested in earning money by writing a story about political campaigns for the newspaper column Interesting Bits. This is a thinly disguised Titbits, the mass circulation magazine that published Woodhouse's first humorous short story, Men Who Have Missed Their Own Weddings. <laughs> In Pigs Have Wings, 1952, we read of, quote, an earnest young man with political ambitions given to reading white papers and studying social conditions. So as you know, a white paper is a government document that discusses possible future legislation. Not the sort of thing a politically ignorant writer would just slip into a character description. In The Gem Collector, 1909, we read of the main character's Uncle John, 
who has a career realistically portrayed as, quote, proceeding from strength to strength, now head partner, next chairman of the company into which the business had been converted, and finally a member of parliament, silent as a wax figure, but a great comfort to the party by virtue of liberal contributions to its funds. In Leave it to Smith 1923, we see in the Senior Conservative Club, quote, little groups of serious thinkers who were discussing what Gladstone had said in 78. This is a remarkably informed political illusion, a reference to the start of the Midlothian campaign, a set of speeches that historians see as constituting the first modern political campaign. It led to Gladstone's liberals defeating Disraeli's conservatives in the 1880 election and therefore to his second premiership. We might also recall Woodhouse's parodies of the pre-war invasion literature. This lucrative and alarmist genre designed, depending on your perspective, to warn England about German aggression or to stir up anti-German feeling. His books, The Swoop, 1909, and The Adjusted Version for America, The Military Invasion of America, 1915, are underrated and not very well-known stories, but they nevertheless took some courage to write in those pre-war times. His most famous venture into politics was his mocking of a thinly disguised Oswald Mosley through the character of Roderick Spode. In Code of the Worcesters, 1938, we learn that Spode is an amateur dictator who leads a group called the Saviors of Britain, known as the Black Shorts, because all the shirt colors had been taken by other groups. <laughs> Here is his portrayal by John Turner in the TV series Jeeves and Worcester. I think he's actually wearing shorts, though. The most political speech in all of Woodhouse's writing is the following, which was given by Bertie Worcester when he was fed up with Spode. It is about time I proceeded that some public-spirited person came along and told you where you got off. The trouble with you, Spode, is that just because you have succeeded in inducing a handful of halfwits to disfigure the London scene by going about in black shorts, you think you're someone. You hear them shouting, Heil Spode, and you imagine it is the voice of the people. That is where you make your bloomer. What the voice of the people is saying is, look at that frightful ass Spode swanking about in footer bags. Did you ever in your puff see such a perfect perisher? Because this episode is so unusually political for the Woodhouse canon, uh, I think readers see it as sort of an exception that proves the rule. But when taken together with the wide variety of other political and partisan references in his stories, some of which I just mentioned, I see it as representing a little bit of continuity rather than being a complete break. The Spode character also makes it difficult to argue that Woodhouse maybe somehow had fascist sympathies that found expression through his Berlin radio broadcast. In his 1958 short story, The Fat of the Land, an uncle of a Drones Club member is discussing his potential estrangement to a woman from Pittsburgh. Their relationship had encountered a bump in the road, but the uncle looks forward to the day when, quote, our talks would be resumed in what politicians call an atmosphere of the utmost cordiality. That phrase was new to me, but it sounded like it might be political, so after some Googling, I revealed that it was from international diplomacy, and therefore appropriately used by Woodhouse in this context. It appears to be an old-fashioned construction with most usages from the early to mid-20th century. Woodhouse also makes his highly sympathetic and much-loved character Rupert Smith a socialist for no clear reason. From his school days to his young adulthood, Smith, that's P. Smith, the P is silent, claims to be a socialist not just to his best friends, but also to a series of very consequential people, ranging from a hostile bank boss who already wants to fire him to a woman he hopes to marry. He does so with humor and perhaps not much understanding of socialism, but these views are a sustained character trait across four novels published from 1909 to 1923. At a time of communist abroad and socialist agitation at home, this is a remarkable yet in many ways superfluous introduction of politics into his comedy. There are also a few additional references to socialism that you can find once you start looking. In The Intrusions of Jimmy, 1910, we read, quote, we read that, quote, a burglar is only a practical socialist. People talk a lot about the redistribution of wealth. The burglar goes out and does it. <laughs> socialism also makes an appearance in other stories. In Something Fresh, 1915, it appears in the context of discussing how juries are biased in favor of plaintiffs in breach of promise cases because of, quote, all this socialism rampant. In the Moliner story, Archibald and the Masses, we read of the temporary socialism of a nephew, Archibald Moliner. He is converted by his valet, who is a member of the socialist groups, and hopes to hasten the revolution and bring about massacres and all that. But socialism uh, makes Archibald Moliner gloomy, and he has trouble enjoying a party because, quote, I don't think a chap ought to be dancing at a time when the fundamental distribution of whatever it is is so dashed, what do you call it? <laughs> 
the nephew also mentions that Stalin, James Maxton, and Sidney Webb, three prominent figures of the times, wouldn't dance either. The nephew then tries to visit the quote-unquote martyred proletariat in the East End and give bread to what he thinks is a needy child, but the child wants candy and throws it back at him and quote, strikes a vicious blow on the nape of his neck. After other misunderstandings, Archibald loses his love of the masses and socialism. It even comes up in descriptions of gardening. In A Damsel in Distress, 1919, we hear that, quote, the hatred which some of his order feel for socialists and demagogues, Lord Marsh Morton kept for rose slugs, rose beetles, and the small yellowish-white insect, which is so depraved and sinister a character that it goes through life with an alias, being sometimes called a rose hopper and sometimes a thrip. And lastly, we should see the many ways in which the British Empire plays a role in his stories. These references seem so natural in the Edwardian context that we pay them little attention, yet they certainly come under the heading of politics and government. To take just one example, the opening line of the short story, Eucharist Rounds a Nasty Corner, 1924, describes a former colonial governor. The late Sir Rupert Lakenheath, KCMG, CB, MVO, was one of those men at whom their countries point with pride. So this shows an understanding of the honor system, and specifically the types of awards a colonial governor might receive. There are many, many references to empire all throughout these stories. N.T.P. Murphy observed that, quote, empire builders occur frequently in Woodhouse because they were part of his world in which he grew up. He was born into an imperial family. Seven of Woodhouse's immediate family were colonial civil servants, his father, his brother, and five uncles, as were innumerable cousins. These included everyone from a governor of Bombay to the last British resident commissioner in the kingdom of Hawaii. His knowledge of empire may therefore have derived from his family background rather than an active interest in current events. Again, we might see this as a knowledge he absorbed rather than a knowledge that he sought. What about political parties? During the years when Woodhouse lived in England, the state of party politics was in some flux. One party was longstanding, the Conservatives or Tories. Another had taken shape by the mid-19th century, the Liberals and a third was emerging in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, labor. In addition, a party alliance developed in the late 19th century that was not technically a party, but was treated in everyday commentary as one, the Unionists. The Unionists came about because of Britain's troubled relationship with Ireland. Woodhouse mentions them numerous times, and they represent a partisan alliance between the Liberal Unionist Party uh, and the Conservative Party. The liberal unionists consisted of a group of liberal party politicians, largely Whig aristocrats, but also some radicals who broke away over the issue of Irish home rule, which they strongly opposed. They did not necessarily agree with the conservatives on other issues, and many continued to share the policy views of their erstwhile colleagues in the liberal party. The conservatives and the liberal unionist party ultimately merged in 1912 to form what is still officially called the conservative and unionist party, currently led by Boris Johnson. Before the merger, this alliance was just commonly referred to as the Unionists. A well-known liberal Unionist was Arthur Conan Doyle. I had to get him in somehow. <laughs> he ran twice for Parliament under their banner because of the Irish home rule question. Conan Doyle wrote in his Memories and Adventures that, quote, I was what was called a liberal Unionist. That is, a man whose general position was liberal, but who could not see his way to supporting Gladstone's Irish policy. Perhaps we were wrong. However, that was my view at the time. According to Ferris, candidates came to be identified in the press as unionists alone. Many modern sources simply conflate the liberal unionists and conservatives when it comes to electoral statistics, he also noted. So when Woodhouse uses the term unionist, he is therefore using a standard but somewhat vague journalistic term of the day, which undoubtedly followed from his work on a newspaper. We meet multiple unionist and conservative political candidates and figures in Woodhouse stories, and almost all, with one exception that I can find, are thoroughly unpleasant people. <laughs> they could have been identified by Woodhouse as members of any political party or no political party, so these attributions are notable and potentially meaningful. In Smith in the City, 1910, we meet an altogether unsympathetic character who is a unionist candidate for parliament. Smith denounces him as a bargee of the most pronounced type, while Mr. Waller more discreetly describes Mr. Bickersdyke as not popular in the office, a little inclined perhaps to be hard on mistakes. 
We also learned that Mr. Bickersdyke previously ran for office as a liberal, an effort which he hopes is long forgotten. But Smith discovers it, and when Mike and Smith read his prior speeches, they say that he lets himself go a bit and is simply cursing the government and calls the royal family bloodsuckers. Now that Mr. Bickersdyke has moved up in the world, he has thrown overboard his youthful ideals and is running as a unionist and a nativist and a jingoist to boot. He says some nasty things about free trade and the alien immigrant. And because liberalism was closely associated with free trade, he's therefore more likely a conservative than a liberal unionist. Benny Green calls Bickersdyke not just a Tory, uh, but a Tory apostate. A Tory apostate who has arrived at his position through worldly advancement and abandoned his youthful ideas. Now, I do think this may be a trifle harsh, as the hero Smith does acknowledge that a person with more taxable income may be forgiven for supporting the party that promises to soften the bite. It is called voting for your interests, something the working class at that time was trying hard to be allowed to do. Incidentally, Mr. Bickersdyke has the distinction of being the great-great-grandfather of former conservative Prime Minister David Cameron, the man who gained our eternal thanks for calling the Brexit referendum. In the Madame Eulalie online annotations of the Woodhouse canon, we read that, quote, Bickersdyke must be modeled on Sir Ewan Cameron, manager of the London branch of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank when Woodhouse worked there. Murphy adds that Ewan's great-great-grandson is also a senior conservative. He is David Cameron, MP. In Summer Lightning 1929, Sir Gregory Parslow Parslow is described as, quote, on the eve of being accepted by the local unionist committee as their accredited candidate for the forthcoming by-election in the Bridgeford and Shifley Parliamentary Division of Shropshire. This is no beloved character, a neighbor who lured away the Earl of Emsworth Pigman and is suspected by the Earl of plotting to nobble his prized pig, the Empress of Blandings. In heavy weather, 1933, Sir Gregory is still hoping to be a nominee of the Unionists for that same by-election. He feared the publication of the Honorable Galahad's scandalous reminiscences because, quote, no one knew better than himself that Unionist committees look askance at men with pass. He also plots with Lady Constance, perhaps the most snobbish and mean-spirited character of the Blandings Castle saga, to steal and destroy the manuscript. We see an oblique reference to the parties in the long arm of Looney Coot, 1923, when uh, Stanley Fanshawe Eucharidge takes it upon himself to help old school friend Boko Lawler in his run for parliament. While we do not clearly see the partisan order of battle, clues in the story show that his friend is the Liberal Party candidate, while his opponent is the Conservative candidate. This campaign also corresponds to the real-life parliamentary elections of 1922 and 1923. In Jeeves and the Impending Doom, 1926, we meet another unlikable character who must be a conservative. The Right Honorable A.B. Filmer is a cabinet minister who is a guest of Aunt Agatha at her country house. We later learn that she is trying to induce this politician to ask Bertie to be his private secretary, an unlikely job, but with the help of a revenge-minded boy and an enraged swan, Bertie manages to avoid the trap. The minister is described thusly by Aunt Agatha. Mr. Filmer is a serious-minded man of high character and purpose, and you are just the type of vapid and frivolous wastrel against which he is most likely to be prejudiced. And the following exchange takes place between Aunt Agatha and Bertie. In the first place, you will give up smoking during your visit. Oh, I say. Mr. Filmer is president of the Anti-Tobacco League, nor will you drink alcoholic stimulants. Oh, dash it. And you will kindly exclude from your conversation all that is suggestive of the bar, the billiard room, and the stage door. As the story was published in 1926, this rather stiff killjoy must have been a conservative MP and member of Stanley Baldwin's cabinet in his second premiership. Woodhouse later refers specifically to the conservative party. He seems to have been a bit slow in acknowledging the formal merger of the conservatives and the liberal unionists in 1912, which I think speaks to his fundamental lack of interest in politics. But by the 1950s, he's caught on. Maybe someone told him. And his characters reflect the political reality of a single conservative and unionist party. In Cocktail Time, 1958, Sir Raymond Bastable is expecting to run as a conservative party candidate in a by-election. Uncle Fred refers to him as a stinker and an overpairing dishpot, and pompous, arrogant, and far too pleased with himself. So Uncle Fred knocks off his hat with a Brazil nut fired by a slingshot. The outraged Sir Raymond is at first deterred from identifying and revenging himself upon the miscreant because he is worried that the voters will lose confidence in a man who gets his topper knocked off. 
He also decides not to publish his subsequent novel of reckless youth, Cocktail Time, because, quote, a man who is hoping for the conservative nomination at Bottleton East has to be cautious. This novel also contains a variety of additional political and military references once you start looking for them. Downing Street, Talleyrand, Home Guard, Juggernaut, they all make their brief appearances, and those were just found by some quick skimming uh, in a relatively short number of pages. We also read what may be Woodhouse's own view of the mother of parliaments, put into the mouth of Lord Ickenham. Why do you want a political career? Have you ever been in the House of Commons and taken a good square look at the inmates? As weird a gaggle of freaks and subhumans as was ever collected in one spot, I wouldn't mix with them for any money you could offer me. We see the conservatives getting it right in the neck in one of his last novels. In Much Obliged Jeeves, published in 1971 when Woodhouse was 90, the plot involves a parliamentary by-election. The conservative candidate is a drones club type, Ginger Winship, who is more concerned about changing fiancés than getting elected to parliament. When a former butler attempts to blackmail him, Ginger tries to get the local newspaper to print the charges in order to sabotage his own campaign. Most importantly, Woodhouse has Roderick Spode, the thinly veiled Oswald Mosley, giving speeches on his behalf. Spode is now a member of the House of Lords, and he's clearly on the Tory bench. This therefore ties a former fascist leader to the Conservative Party, a remarkable plot point that is easy to ignore if you're focusing on the human relations rather than the politics. The only positive portrayal of a conservative politician I've found so far is in The White Feather, 1907. Sir William Bruce is not an important character, but his parliamentary campaign is the excuse for the fight that our hero evades, thus the title of the White Feather. Sir William is described as, quote, an old Rykinian, that's the school, a governor of the school, a man who was always watching school matches, and the donor of the Bruce Challenge Cup for the school mile, in fine, one of the best. But that's it as far as looking for positive conservatives in the canon. What about the senior conservative club? One might point out that the Earl of Emsworth, in addition to four other characters, was a member of the Senior Conservative Club. This is a lightly disguised constitutional club, which was affiliated with the Conservative Party. It was also one of the six London clubs to which Woodhouse belonged at some point, and he was a member of the Constitutional Club much longer than anywhere else, possibly joining in 1903 or 1904. Does this membership suggest he had some sympathy with the conservatives after all? To answer this, we need to know why Woodhouse joined. He may have liked the food and anonymity, which is consistent with the club's description in Leave it to Smith in 1923, but, he may, but that was two decades after he probably joined, and he may have initially joined for reasons more about career expediency. As noted above, Woodhouse's first real journalism job, the job that was absolutely critical to him leaving the bank and establishing a career as a writer, so we can't underestimate how important this job was to him, uh, was with the Globe's By the Way column. He started in 1902, and he may have joined the Senior Conservative Club the next year. Maybe Woodhouse joined the club at this time because it was the least political way to signal an affiliation with the Conservative Party. The newspaper, the conservative paper, may not have wanted him to run for parliament as a Tory, but maybe possibly it might have been reassured by some indication that he was part of the conservative world. So we might not interpret his membership and the club's appearance in his fiction as indicative of his political views. It may just represent a club that he joined for expediency, but came to appreciate for its food and ambiance. I do admit this may be a bit of a stretch, but I kind of like this argument. What about the liberal and labor parties? In contrast to the conservatives and unionists, there are not many characters that represent the liberal and labor parties. In The White Feather, 1907, one of the political candidates is Mr. Petter, an energetic radical, which undoubtedly means in this context liberal party candidates, but he's not presented as positive or negative, just a, just a person. In The Intrusions of Jimmy, 1910, we see a joking reference to a living politician. The narrator complains how wagering has declined from these spacious days of the Regency because of liberal Prime Minister Asquith. The narrator continues that when Mr. Asquith is dethroned, it is improbable that any Briton will allow his beard to remain unshaved until the Liberal Party returns to office. In Leave it to Jeeves, we read of a Mr. Digby Thistleton maid who did so well by selling a hair growth tonic that he was, quote, shortly afterwards elevated to the peerages for services to the Liberal Party. 
As a side note, this hair growth tonic was undoubtedly as genuine a medicinal product as other tonics that appear in the Woodhouse stories, like Peppo and Buck You Uppo, which if you know, are probably filled with alcohol because they send everyone from parrots to curates into a frenzy after being consumed. The Labor Party makes a brief appearance in Love Among the Chickens, 1921, when the narrator, Jeremy Garnett, encounters a small boy named Albert on the train to the Oak Ridge chicken farm. Albert annoys our hero by showing, quote, a skill in logomachy that marked him out as a future labor member. This description is not in the earlier 1909 edition, 12 years earlier, where Albert is less creatively described as, quote, the rudest boy on earth, a proud title honestly won. This change not only reflects Woodhouse's growing writing skill, but also shows awareness of the emergence of the Labor Party as an organized political movement. This awareness may have had some limits, however. The lowercase l in the story recalls an earlier time when the labor movement was coordinating with the Liberal Party to elect candidates rather than competing as an equal against all parties. So in conclusion, the evidence is clear. Woodhouse did have some familiarity with politics. He included political details in many stories, and always in ways that revealed accurate and even sophisticated understandings of it. Furthermore, a few plots revolve around parliamentary elections. One caveat is that these political references are primarily those he would have learned in his young adulthood. And since his stories mostly take place in the Edwardian world, this makes sense. While some elements of his writing advance chronologically, see the 1965 story Bingo Bands the Bomb, his characters remain spiritually in the world of Jeeves and Worcester. In this way, he was both political and apolitical. A young Woodhouse appeared to have inadvertently and involuntarily learned about politics as a columnist for a conservative newspaper. Because he was intelligent and ambitious, he learned well. When he left the Globe and wrote about London's West End and the country house set, he sprinkled this political knowledge into his stories. He largely neglected to update his stock of information and showed relatively little interest in the politics of subsequent decades, although with one important exception, the mocking of Roderick Spode and British fascism in the, in the late 1930s. In addition, when Woodhouse created a disagreeable character and made him a member of a political party, that person is almost always a conservative or unionist. In my view, he did this not from any great partisan or ideological fervor, but maybe out of resentment against the globe, which made him write partisan drivel in support of the conservative party and against the liberal party. Only in an early short story do we meet a good conservative, but he is an incidental figure. By contrast, the liberal and labor parties are not saddled with any pigman stealers or xenophobes. Aside from a very few minor mentions, these two parties are off the hook. My conclusion is that Woodhouse was fundamentally uninterested in politics, and in that sense, his defenders such as Orwell had a point. Nevertheless, we should not go too far and deny the knowledge that he did have, which he added to many stories and which enliven his plots and characters. But none of this indicates that he was politically sophisticated at the time of his internment or that he held any political views in the 1930s beyond a general anti-fascism. A Woodhouse with informed and sophisticated political views up until his internment, or a Woodhouse with far-right sympathies might be a different story. After reviewing the political evidence, I see no other conclusion except that of his friends. He was only guilty of cluelessness, poor judgment, and stupidity for making those Berlin radio broadcasts.